If Seth told his testimony, our testimonies could not be more opposite. As he found himself at the, in alcoholism, I find, found myself as a Pharisee of Pharisees growing up. I knew I was right, and God owed me something because, man, I am so good. <laughs> and praise be to God, he revealed the truth to me. I want you to picture for a moment you're a judge in a pretty high court, and this, this case comes across your desk. It's, a, it's an appeals case. Another judge has already deliberated on this case and given his verdict. The case is a pretty slam dunk case. A man takes advantage of a woman and then turns and murders another man. Eyewitness accounts all agree to the story. DNA tests all match. It is one of those things that all of our news outlets would agree, this guy is guilty. And what you see written on the docket that has appeared before you is in big red letters, not guilty. You would be furious. How could this be? How could a judge say not guilty? It's very clear. This is a scandal. So you being a good judge and desiring justice is going to go to the judge who said not guilty. And you walk into his chambers and you stand before God himself. And you look at God and you say, God, how can this be? What am I supposed to say to this girl's friends? She was taken advantage of. What am I supposed to say to this guy's family? They lost their son. How can you say not guilty? And you realize that this is the story of King David. That God looked at King David and said, not guilty. What I want to pose to you this morning, church, is this very simple fact. Forgiveness is a scandal. It's a problem for God to solve. And so often I think we forget that because we sit there and we go, okay, God is good. God is just. He's forgiven me. yip de doo I can move on. But we realize that in order for God to be just, he cannot just Forgive me. So how can a good God stand on justice, forgiving someone like David and forgiving someone like me? I was thinking about all the Easter messages I've heard growing up. You know what I mean? I got to the point when I was a know-it-all at like 16 where I was like, been there, heard that. I know 1 Corinthians 15. I know John chapter 20. I know all of the texts inside, outside, upside down. I could preach them myself by the time I was 16. And so often being in high school, hearing Jesus died for you and being the Pharisee that I was saying, well, of course he died for me. Because I'm really awesome. God needs me on his team. I'm just like winsome personality, right? God needs me. 
Of course he died for me. I had a friend that was not a Pharisee. And when he heard God died for you, here's how he interpreted that. That works out. I'm going to go continue to live my life as I want. You see, the term Jesus died for you, I think needs a little bit more of a teaching. And so the this question we're going to ask this morning, and we're going to seek to ask, and we're, we're going to seek to answer, is who did Christ die for? Did Christ die for you? Or did Christ die for God? And I think so often, all you church brats are like ready to go with your answer. Like, yes! I think so often, we don't sit in that question long enough. And it's very clear, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is going to be our text this morning. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. They're going to be on the screens behind us. We're going to show you that this is God's word, fully authoritative. God does not move without the preaching of God's word. It is God's word in which the church learns from, grows from, understands from. And so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. And before we open up God's word and the preaching of God's word, I want to invite you to pray with me. Why do we pray? Because preaching is a supernatural moment. It is the uh, command of the pastor to preach the word in season and out of season. This is how God communicates with his people is when a sinner mess up, inadequate, ill-prepared human stands and says, this is the word of God. God moves in that because where I am weak, he is strong. And so what we also understand is God is king. So I want to invite you, if you're able, join me on your knees as we go before the Lord in prayer. Would you join me? Father, your word says that there was a hundred sheep and one went missing. And God, you left the 99 to go search out the one. God, we are so grateful for that heartbeat of ministry. God, may that be our heartbeat this morning. God, as we open up your word, God, I ask that you speak through me. God, that you use me. And God, that we'll understand that this is not my opinion, but this is your declaration to us. Now, church, I ask that you pray for me. Pray that I'll be helpful to you. Pray that the Lord will use me. But most of all, pray that I become nothing so Christ becomes everything this morning. Now, church, I ask that you pray for yourself. Pray that God will remove distractions and pray that your ears will be open to hear his voice this morning. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read to you 
Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5 and working down through 11, and then we'll go. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. What is it that separates Christianity from all other religions? What is the point that separates our beliefs from all the other religions in the world. If you were to go down to the U of A, disgusting, wretched place it is, and you were to talk to you later. If you were to go down to that vile place, and you were to just stand on that great lawn and see the depravity And start asking some people some questions. And you were to ask them about different religions and different faith understandings and different beliefs. And you were to ask them about the Christian faith. At some point, you'll eventually hear somebody say, they're all pretty much the same. Every religion is about living a good life and getting to a good place. They all kind of end up in that end. If you were to ask a Muslim and a Jew and you were to put them together in a room and ask them about Christianity, the one thing they would agree on and that they would affirm together and amen each other in is that the Christian faith is wrong on the basis of the cross of Jesus Christ. That the cross is the dividing line. It's where they draw the line. It's where they see Christianity being wrong. They would tell you, because God cannot die. And it is on this fact, the cross, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, died on a cross, is our living hope. Church, friends, I am here to tell you this morning, the message of Easter It is the message of yesterday, tomorrow, and forever. It is the message of the church. It is the message that is preached here every single Sunday. And that is the simple fact that God came to earth and purchased for us a salvation by his own blood. And it is how you believe and understand that fact you will give an answer. All other religions have to answer this question. How good is good enough in order to inherit eternal life? And you see, in our postmodern culture, everyone thinks they're good enough. Hitler thought he was good in doing the right thing. Now, how could it be that when you go and talk to everyone, everyone says, I'm good enough But they would also affirm not everyone is good enough. 
Because the problem is we're defining good in different categories. You have defined what good is by your understanding of good, not by the authority. You see the problem, don't you? You then become your authority of your access to God. And also, by how you judge, you eliminate forgiveness. Because how you judge, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't raped anyone. That would mean King David is no longer in heaven. So you see, your understanding of good is therefore then wrong. So what is good enough? The answer is always found in the cross. You see, the cross is what sits at the center of our moral relativism. The cross destroys our understanding of good and wrong because it clearly states there is no one good, no, not one. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5 through 7, says this. Have this mind among among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The cross is how you're going to have to answer everything you do. Every question you have, you're going to have to run it through how you understand the cross. If you go to the grocery store and you look at Time Magazine and National Geographic, you're going to see a magazine, and on the front is going to be one question. Who is Jesus? Anyone seen this recently? Every Easter, it seems like they run another story. Who is Jesus? Christ, Jesus Christ was God in flesh. He affirmed this to be true. How do we know this is true? Because his opponents understand these were his claims. Why? Because when he, were ta- he was talking to the Pharisees, they picked up rocks to stone him. The only reason they do that is if he claimed to be God in flesh. It was a capital punishment. It was blasphemy to declare to be God. Also, when you read the Gospels, they take painstaking detail to declare to you Jesus is God. For instance, talk about walking on water. If you were to go to the book of Job, you would see that only God stretches out his hands, makes the heavens, and treads on water. Next, many people have misunderstood this verse when it says that he emptied himself. Everyone thinks that Jesus somehow emptied himself of some divine attributes. That's heresy. He did not empty himself of any divine attributes. That doesn't make sense in the text, nor does it make sense philosophically. If a porcupine was to empty himself of some porcupine attributes, guess what he would no longer be? A porcupine. If a dog were to empty himself of attributes only that of dogs, he would no longer be a dog. So God, Christ, did not empty any divine attributes. The common idiom we would understand today is he made himself a nobody. Uh, The only lame example I could think of was if you all have seen Aladdin. Remember how Jasmine sneaks out of the castle and she's dressed like a beggar? Same idea. Except he didn't sneak out of the kingdom. He was sent on a mission. Next, he did these things 
and he did not see it as something to be grasped. John Dalbury Acton famously gave the quote, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this is where we get the checks and balances discussion and all that we have. Yet what we see in Christ is he had full and complete power, yet it did not corrupt him. This is the great proof of his deity. Think of how tempting it would be when he's hungry to just make bread as he's walking. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do anything for selfish gain. Next, Christ shows us who the Father is. Christ is the exact imprint of who God is. Who God is, Christ is. Who Christ is, God is. They have the same nature. And so you see, when Jesus was walking through Jericho and he saw Zacchaeus sitting up in a tree, he would have been totally just to look at Zacchaeus and say, hey, Zacchaeus, you're a jerk. You've, you've mistreated people. You've stolen money. You better start running, buddy. He would have been totally justified in that, yet seeing how he didn't, he said, come down, I must eat with you. A good rabbi teacher would not be seen eating with the likes of a tax collector such as Zacchaeus. I love how Moises Silva sums up this this, um, passage. He says this, precisely because he was in the form of God, He reckoned equality with God, not as a matter of getting, but as a matter of giving. And this is why Paul starts, have this mind among you, church. This is where the term Christian comes from. They're little Christs. And so Paul is saying, look at the cross. Is that how you are living your life? self-sacrifice are you giving more than you're receiving finally jesus was not seeking the approval of man jesus had no desire for man's applause he only wanted the father because he knew what god declared in isaiah i am god and there is no one above me Christ knew no one was above him. He had authority over everyone, yet he served. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You want to know who God is, you look to the cross. Our Muslim and Jewish friends, the cross is a stumbling block for them. They cannot see God in the cross, yet it is the cross where God reveals himself. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's going to be baptized. And as he's being baptized, uh, John the Baptist looks and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Think about what John is saying there. He's saying, look at this man. He's going to take the sins of the world away by becoming an animal. Christ humbled himself to the point of becoming a man and then humbled himself even greater by being treated as an animal, the lamb. This was to fulfill Isaiah 53. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He humbled himself. The cross is offensive. 
When you look at first century, second century, third century, even into the fourth century literature, the cross was only spoken of in one way, disgusting, shameful. This was not a common discussion. They weren't being tattooed on people. It was nasty. We're used to like the kind of the old Western when they're like, they're going to lynch them today. That did not happen in the first, second, third, and fourth century when it came to the cross. You did not talk about it. First century Cicero said this about the cross. He said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is murder. To crucify him is what? There's no fitting words that could describe so horrible of a deed. The very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. You see, the cross was reserved for the most vile and wicked people. The slaves, the outcasts. So the question we come back to, did Christ die for God or did Christ die for you? I want us to wrestle with that. I want us to think about this. First and foremost, I'm going to tell you on the authority of Scripture, Christ came to die for God first. Not my will, but your will be done. The cross was not an attempt. It was an accomplishment. The cross was not to just offer something and say, here you go, if you want it, there it is. But the cross was there to purchase a people. Purchase his people. And that's the beauty of not my will, but your will. Because what you start to notice about verse 8, as he took the human form, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, is when he cried on that rock, Father, if there's any other way for us to save our people, if there's any other way, I want to save the elect. If there's any other way, let's do that way. Yet I'm willing to give up and do your way if it means greater glory for you. Because the cross was the only way. See, the cross is the answer on how God can put on the ledger of King David, not guilty. The cross answers that question. Because God offered Christ as a substitute for your life and for mine. Because long before sin is a damage to man, it is a dishonor to God. Now we've gotten heavy. But I know how your mind's thinking. I'm not that bad. I'm not like David. I'm not like Hitler. I'm a good dude. I'm a good mom. I'm a good whatever. But we could all agree you're not perfect, right? And so by the very definition of you not being perfect, you're not holy. You're not good. So how does this happen? You have to wonder, are you enough this morning? Are you enough for God? So what does he mean by sacrifice? What is the sacrifice? In pagan cultures, sacrifices were given to the gods to appease them, to keep them at bay, to just say, hey, listen, I'm going to give this to you so you can get off my back. 
Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the books about sacrifice do not speak of sacrifices that way. They speak of sacrifices this way, that God presents the sacrifice to himself. It's always God's. It's always been God's. I love how John Stott says it about the cross. Unless you see the cross as that which has been done by you, you will never appreciate what it has been done for you. So this is why the cross is about God first. Because God purchased his church. He purchased his people. He purchased all those who would believe in him. Those who don't, how does the cross affect them? How the cross affects them is they have to wrestle and argue with, am I good enough for God's presence? Am I good enough to be holy? If by definition you are unholy, then you'd be darkness, and holiness would be the center of a candle. They cannot exist, for in the center of a candle it casts out all darkness. So the big question, how can a holy God dwell with an unholy people is found at the center of the cross. Because he substituted. God treated Jesus as if he lived your life so he could treat you as if you lived Jesus' life. Finally, the humbling of the gospel and the cross. Think about this for a moment. Christ was fully God, fully man, fully in control of all of history. Every single Adam happened at his very word. Which means when the soldiers went to scourge him with the sticks about this long and this thick, when they went to break his back with that, he gave permission to the muscles in their arms to fly through the air and strike him. When they hawked a loogie and spit him, he gave them the saliva that was possible to come from their throat, through their mouth, to his face. And when the nails were being driven into his wrists, he determined where those nails go. It is the cross that shows you and I how we are beyond broken, yet so broken it took Christ to pay for you. Yet so loved, he did it with great joy. He does not regret it. It is the power of salvation because he knew it would win the day. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. First, we had Christ's humiliation. Now we have Christ's exaltation. First, we need to deal with the question, what is the name Paul is talking about here in 9 through 11? Christ had a title. Jesus Christos Kyrios, Jesus Christ Lord. Let's talk about these three names. Let's start with the Christos. The Christos in Greek is Messiah, Messiah in Hebrew. 
It's the anointed one. It's God's chosen one who will fulfill God's promises and fulfill what God has commanded on the day. Let's talk about the word Jesus. Jesus is the Greek word Jesus. It is the Hebrew word Yeshua, the English word Joshua. I find it interesting. In English, we have Joshua and Jesus, yet they're the same word in Hebrew. And what's interesting is that means God, Yahweh, saves. God saves, and Jesus fulfills that name. Kyrios, Lord, Master, King. You see, Lord is a very common word in the ancient Rome, first century Rome. They would, you would hear things like people say, Kyrios Nero. It'd be the same thing as we said, President blank. You see, it was a, very, it was a title for them. And so what we see is when the Christians would say, my Lord is Jesus Christ, there would be an affront to the Romans. Well, you don't like our country, get out of here. If our, if our Lord is not your Lord, then get out of here. You see, it was Lord in which they found most offensive. And it is Lord that they're talking about here. How do I know? You can make a lot of strong arguments. But I think if you were to think back, that after Jesus was baptized, he is taken away into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And one of these temptations is Satan brings Jesus to the tallest mountain and he says, look at all these kingdoms. You see, all these kingdoms, if you would just bow down and worship me, I will give you all of these kingdoms. Now, the hard part is in 21st century, we go, well, that's not much of a temptation. And we like, our like Phariseeism comes out and we're like, that's a stupid temptation. No one would be tempted by that. But you see, Jesus is looking forward to this scripture where he will get everything. What Satan is offering Jesus is, I will give you your kingdom without the cross. All you got to do is bow down to me. How much of a temptation would it be knowing that the cross is on your horizon and you get to say no to that and still get all of it? What a temptation. But you see, Jesus didn't do that. He said, no, 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 I'm going to do this God's way. Because God's way is the only way. I will serve him and only him. Do you see how important this is? It is because of the cross that we know Christ is king over all. Finally, at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Many people have tried to make this the argument that this simply means that all will go to heaven. This is like some universal thing that all, whether a pawn or a king, they're all going to end up in the same box. There's many reasons why that should be discounted, but the first one is because that's against the whole rest of the scriptures. You could not get that by reading all of the scriptures. And that's simply not what this is saying. 
Second, the bowing that will happen will happen on the final day. Every knee will bow on the final day of judgment. The only question is, where will your knee bow? Will it bow in willful submission before the throne of God? Or when you stand before God and you see the lamb that was slain that's been resurrected, and you'll see, I was so wrong. There will be bowing in heaven and in hell. Cross bearers on earth are crown wearers in heaven. There will be a day. There will be a day of final judgment. And for the church, for those who believe, for those who put their faith and trust in God, God will look at them and say, I see my son and my son only. I don't see your works. I don't see your good deeds. I see the blood of my son and that's good enough for me. And then there will be those who will show up before him and say, I didn't trust in your son. I trusted in my own works. And God will say, away from me, I never knew you. The cross is what we bet everything on. And let me, just, let me just take the load off of you this morning. If you're trying, like Seth talked about, working your way into salvation, I'm here to tell you, how good's good enough? You gotta answer that question. How good's good enough? And who are you defining good? But when you come before Christ and you say, nothing to the cross I bring, only to the cross I cling, he says, that's good enough for me. And you say, God, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not the best enough. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. He says, but I am. Come to me. See, the payment of Christ's life is enough to save a wretch like you and a wretch like me. The cross shows us our sin while simultaneously showing us how far God is willing to go for you this morning. And to give you life. See, Christ did in six hours what would have taken us an eternity. No one is excluded from calling upon the name of the Lord. The gates are open. The only thing that keeps us back is our unbelief. Do not leave here unless you can tell me, unless you can tell me for sure, I know where I'm going on this basis. Many of you that are born and raised in the church are like, he didn't say he is risen. And we all yell back, he's risen indeed. Here's the point. Why do we celebrate Easter? What's the point? The resurrection proved that Christ was not a liar or a lunatic, but he was Lord. The resurrection proved everything he said would come true, that he would pay for all of our sins on that cross. He would humble himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross would be true and that there is no more wrath to be poured out. The resurrection proved that. And you're like, well, how do I know he was resurrected? How do I know you're not lying to me? Because he appeared to over 500 people. Historical eyewitness accounts. 
And I want to tell you, if he's not Lord of your life, you're the Lord of your life. And you're going to have to wrestle with what the cross and the resurrection did. Is he Lord or is he liar? Where do you sit this morning? Let us pray. Father God, it's the gospel in which we cling. It's the gospel in which we know. It's the gospel in which we're found right and just. It's the belief that you paid and you paid it all. And we owe it all to you. God, I pray if there is someone in here who does not call you Lord, I pray that they do so right now. God, if there is someone in here who does not have a church, I pray that they will know this church will preach the Bible and the Bible alone. Because that's where we cling. Lord, we love you. Amen. If you would rise and worship with us in response to preaching God's words. If you have any questions from our sermon this morning or just you want to find out how you can get more involved in our church, come and talk to me and Scott afterwards. We want to meet you. We want to answer your questions and we'd love to pray with you this morning.